we do have certain spatial and aesthetic tendencies, I guess you call them, things that we think work and work well and look right. And so we stick to those. So our firm is a balance of that. I think we're very client focused. Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. My guest on Talk Design today is Scott Specht from Specht Architecture. Now, Scott has offices in Austin, Texas and New York. Really interesting. He's uh, lived in Sydney as well and worked on... Uh, big old buildings in Sydney, as well as does a lot of residential. So mainly based in residential now. Is that correct, Scott? It sort of shifts around depending on what the market needs, but we do a little bit of everything. We do offices. Um, right now we're doing consulting work. Uh, we do all the conceptual design for Indeed.com. Their offices around oh, wow. the world. Um, yeah, so cool. That's a lot of our office type work, um, but we do university buildings and residences. But right now it's tending toward residences, mostly since COVID. Okay. A lot of the other stuff. Yes, I was going to say a lot of that. on hold for a while, yeah. So with that, um, I'll let you do a little intro of yourself, um, and you can just tell us a little bit of your journey that got you to this point where you are, because as I said, Sydney, um, where you came down here and worked in Sydney on, you know, sky uh, skyscraper and then also obviously new york you've worked there and then austin you're based there yourself and we're going to dig into some other things around that sort of part of the conversation okay um, but just tell us a little bit of that journey that took you from one place to the other and the background behind it all right i'll try to make it brief uh is um <laughs> yeah after i graduated undergraduate grew up in florida and uh, oh, okay. my undergraduate degree there, but I kind of left Florida as soon as I could. Uh, wasn't my kind of place. And uh, got out and went to New York. And I actually started out, I, even though I got my degree in architecture, I wanted to get into the film industry doing production design. So I worked right. in that for a short period of time in New York at exactly the wrong time. It's when there was no film production being done in New York. It was all in LA uh, or California. Mm -hmm. And uh, New York, there were, you know, onerous union restrictions and things like that. So there wasn't a whole lot of work to do. And that's probably why it was all being done in LA. I think, I think that was part of it. And <laughs> yeah, so I, I had some friends who were in architecture and they said, well, come join the firm, do this for a while while you're getting your legs. And I went into architecture and I never looked back from there. Uh, so I started uh, doing skyscrapers at a really big firm, Cone Pedersen Fox. And we did uh -huh. projects around the world. Uh, one of the projects I did was a building in, in Sydney and they shipped us off to Sydney, the whole team. Uh, for about a year, year and a half. Uh, got to live there. It's beautiful. And uh, did a project in Jakarta, a couple of other oh, okay. things. And But I realized um, working there that I, I wasn't really cut out for working for other people. <laughs> and <laughs> and maybe Did you realize that before they realized it? Uh, yes, I think so. I think, <laughs> I think they were pretty happy with my work and I was just not a good, you know, not great. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to be a, a designer when you're designing for another designer. Because you're always yeah. trying to second guess what they want and, you know, you know their style and you're trying to replicate that in some way. So it's always kind of a tough mm -hmm. balance. And I was kind of working with somebody else's signature. You are. And, and I wasn't so happy doing that. 
um, for whatever reason. So, um, yeah. but I understand it. And I think a lot of people thrive in that situation where you kind of have like a, a professor or, a, you know, someone critiquing your work all along. Anyway, um, I did, I put in, uh, you know, about four years there um, and decided to go back to grad school. So I went to Yale and got my degree, um, my graduate degree there. And soon afterwards, I did sort of semi um, in-house, but semi freelance-ish work for Deborah Burke Architects for a long time and did Daniel Liebeskin's office uh, in Berlin for a while too. Uh, I worked on the World Trade Center competition, uh, which he won, and uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz project there. But all the, wow. during the time I was doing those, I was still with my uh, ex-partner, uh, Louise Hartman, uh, was we were building our own firm, doing really small projects in New York. Wow! And we we made our breakout during the you know late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, during the dot com boom because uh, there was okay. a, lot, there were a lot of offices, really cheap, quick, and dirty offices being built in New York uh, for all these little startup companies. And we took that on. We were doing twenty five dollar a square foot office spaces for people by scavenging garbage and uh, literally putting things like used water bottles into walls and uh, making light fixtures out of air fil- truck air filters and all kind of crazy yeah, stuff. Wow. So we got noticed then. Uh, we were published quite a bit uh, in Interior Design Magazine and a couple of other places for these innovative, you know, scrappy offices and kind of built a practice from there. So I practiced with Louise, um, who was my uh, wife at the time. Yep. Uh, we had our practice uh, based in New York um, for many years. And then she got offered a position at the University of Texas as one of the deans. And so oh, wow. I had never been to Austin in my life. Neither of us had. And so we showed yep. up in Austin and we're like, what? Are we actually going to move here? Um, but it was a great position. And so we decided to do it. And I was commuting back and forth to New York uh, the whole time to run the office. Uh, meanwhile, starting a small practice in Austin while I was here. Yeah. And over time, that slowly, you know, the, the work, um, we still do a lot of work in the Northeast and in New York, um, but we got more and more work in Austin. And so uh, we kept both offices going the whole time. And I've been, until COVID, traveling back and forth super frequently. But since COVID hit, wow. I've been uh, stationed more or less in Austin uh, during that time. And yeah. so I focused a lot of the efforts, uh, you know, at least our staff efforts here. We, we're a little bit funny, though. Our projects are not regional at all. We're not... You know, we don't have uh, work in New York and Austin only. We do stuff all over the country and Mexico. And so it's a very odd practice is that we're not local. Yeah, right. So it, your office doesn't define your project. Like it's, it's not where the bulk of the work comes from. It just defines your team. It does. Um, it, it, we have a great team and, uh, you know, couldn't operate without that. Um, and they, they happen to be located in Austin. So but the projects are wherever they need to be. Yeah, that's pretty cool, really, isn't it? And do you ship them off for a year and a half to do a skyscraper kind of thing or a couple of years? <laughs> we, we don't do skyscrapers, so no. But uh, we'd love to do a skyscraper and we'd definitely do something like that. But uh, no, our projects are smaller. Uh, we do, you know, like I said, a lot of houses and some commercial work and university buildings, that kind of thing. I've got a, I've got a question based on that skyscraper piece. And I ask this usually to people at the end of a podcast if I ask it at all, but if you've got one project left and you can't do another project ever, this is it. This is it. This is the the project that um, you get to choose what it is. What would it be? Yeah, that's a tough one. You can't ever. You can't ever practice again. This is done. 
Well, you could do the Carlos Garpa move and do a cemetery and uh, put your plant yourself outside the walls of the cemetery or in the cemetery. And <laughs> that's a, that used to be popular among architects is design their own graves. That was a that was Just, a big thing. And uh, really, oh yeah, there are quite a few architects in the you know. Uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, who were really into that idea of, of design. Design their own mausoleum. Permanent, permanent final home. Yeah. So, uh, but if, if for other types of things to, you know, I would honestly, I would do a park. Wow. Which is an odd thing yeah. for an architect, but uh, I, wow. I definitely would do a public park and a very small public park and focus very intensely on the experience of moving through it. And I guess that's not that different than Brion Cemetery by Scarpa, which is exactly that. It's a beautiful park, uh, more than, you know, anything focused on who happens to be buried there. Going there was a really a transformative experience because it was a complete indoor, outdoor architectural experience. Um, I got to look that up. The entire time. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting thing that, you know, what, what would it be? And I get some amazing answers of what it would be. And yeah, I love that, like a public park, a public space. Do you know, most um, most people tell me something that's a public space. It is mm-hmm. uh, often a church. Right. Well, not being public, any- that wouldn't be so useful, but to me personally, and yeah. probably wouldn't be the, the yeah. person who had the most insight into that. But uh, No, exactly. Mind you, like- maybe you should do it. Yeah, I mean, a, a public <laughs> the public- others are all pre it's kind we of space like that. It's sort of a secular uh, yeah. space to meditate and 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 have those experiences that you may have in a church uh, elsewhere. But uh, yeah. but yeah, a public park would be a, you know an amazing thing. And I, I keep thinking of experiences that could be designed into public parks if budget was no issue. That could be yes. really incredible. And you know, based more on early picturesque ideas of having the architecture interwoven into the, the parks and going underground and above ground and different ways to view what's going on around you. It's really about seeing and being seen and a lot of experiences that you don't find, you know, a lot of theme parks incorporate those kind of things that you don't yeah. see in public parks. And, you know, architects don't often like to think about theme parks, but there's actually a lot to be learned there. I think. Uh, undoubtedly, you know, t- theme parks are designed to engage you yeah. and make you and keep you interested while you wait in line. Right. You know, um, that they're an incredible, um, I, I suppose there they're a bunch of things put together and but they have a, an incredible draw, you know, like they draw you to things. Think of the High Line in New York. I mean, there's a, a public park there that um, a lot of great innovation. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you wander past people's living room windows yep. as you go through there as well as get these amazing vistas and, you know, end up in one end of the other of it at, you know, Hudson Yard at one end again. And just it's it's a fantastic public park. And who would have thought that a disused railway line was ever going to do that? No, it is amazing. And it and, and it's amazing because it breaks the idea of what a park should be. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I still have memories. I visit when I visited Hong Kong, there was a, a park. Uh, in the north part of Hong Kong, right near the border uh, with the mainland. And uh, it was a park where you hiked up to a, a Buddhist temple. But the the pathway for the hike went right through people's houses. Through their, You walk through their living rooms. And they, no. they had set up, there would be somebody there watching TV on a couch. 
And they had set up a little, a lot of these houses had set up little trays and booths where they would sell things to the hikers who were coming through the house. Sure. But th- that complete dissolving of public and private was super fascinating to me. It was, it made it one oh. of the most memorable park hiking experiences I've ever done before. Yeah. How incredible. Yeah. How incredible. <laughs> Again, like you say, like it, it, it just locks in um, this kind of experiential thing. You know, you you if it was uh, probably not in um, Chinese, but if it was in uh, English, you'd be going. And there was a guy watching, right, <laughs> on his TV. You know, like you'd, there'd be something that you, there'd be recognition points that you'd be your mind would just be exploding. Yeah, even the first home that you walked up to that you were going to walk through, you'd be going, "Am I going through there? Is this a tunnel? Yeah, don't worry, it's all good. Yeah, keep moving." And then you'd be like, "Hold on a second, that's a that's a living room, or that's a kitchen." Yeah, no, those are the yeah. greatest things. Is where you're you're not quite sure what you're seeing and your brain yeah. trying to flip back and forth between different models of what you what's in your experience and it doesn't quite match up and exactly i um i asked uh i don't know whether you know a guy called Jamie Jury we just dropped his podcast the other day but Jamie um is a horticulturalist and uh landscape architect and in Australia he's a well well known tv personality and he's he's pretty well known in the US as well um been on the Oprah show does a lot of work there in the US and uh he designs um, resorts essentially is a lot of what they do. They do a lot of furniture and stuff as office, but they design a lot of resorts. And they, at one point, I think he was saying they had 38 offices globally. Wow. Yeah. And um, anyway, he scaled that back down to two offices, but they've still got all these big projects. But they might have a developer who says, uh, we want a highly sustainable resort. And so they will design it essentially, including the architecture, but to carry the weight of the trees and the and so it's all green walls and curtains mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and the horticultural sort of survive. So I said to Jamie, Jamie, uh, as I said, don't ask it of everybody. I said, what's like one last project? And he goes, you know what? I need a, I need a developer kind of thing, and I need to go out there and where there's land costs nothing in the in the middle of the Australian outback, you know, because land's got like almost zero value in parts of right. it out there. It's only the cattle that are on it is the value. He goes, I want a big lot and I want to build a complete town, a complete, um, not just town, but um, community where people can come and live there. There's commerce, there's everything else, but they, uh, the land is worth zero still. So anybody could come and we can design, build, create their home. And then maybe they're all modular. So they get added on to piece by piece by piece. So that as their family grows, it can grow with them. And um, we put in a landscape that makes it um, completely self-sustainable as well and uses its own energy. And uh, I'm like, the, the scale of this is what I want to do. And I'm like, but I'd just spoken to him for, you know, half an hour and we talked about resorts that he was doing in, you know, Spain and places like this and how these were all put together and stuff. But yeah, just, I went, wow, that's, that's big thinking, like really big thinking. He has a whole thing called Jamie's Groundswell as well, which is all about that sustainability. Well, I think and I'm going to use every, that. Every architect has their, uh, you know, dream project of sorts and, yeah. uh, you know, keep messing around with it. I've, I've certainly had an, quite a few of those things uh, over time. And it's always comes down to financing. It's like you can have all of the course. ideas and it's getting somebody to buy into your vision and finance it. Um, 
And speaking, and, of- and also, yeah, well, that's why I want to go to Zero House based on that. Right, but you right. tell me where you want to go. No, do you want to go to Zero House? For people who don't haven't seen it, it just describe it was you know, like I said, there, every architect has these projects that you know you have your your work projects, and then there's always some project in the back of your head that you keep doodling on when you have a little spare yeah. time. So for many many years, I had this one called the Zero House, and the idea was it's a. Uh, a modular house that you would just drop into place and it, it would, it, it ties to the ground only at four points. It's got four legs that hit the ground, but basically it's, it's completely, really light, lightweight footprint for it. Yeah. It's got these helical anchors. You drive into the, whatever the soil is that you're on and you set it up on that. And it, it's completely self-sufficient. It can just operate itself without any input. Uh, this was, you know, 10 years ago before the tiny home movement started and yeah. any of that stuff. And this wasn't exactly a tiny home. It was about a thousand square feet, but um, okay. you know, it had every bell and whistle. It had photovoltaics, it had rainwater collection, it had a, a digester in it for waste processing, all that kind of stuff. So we did a series of renderings and diagrams and had it fully engineered and got tons and tons of press, but it was expensive. The problem with that zero house was that everything was integrated. So um, the photovoltaic system, for instance, was also a rainwater collection plane. So you couldn't cut back on the cost and eliminate one part without having the whole thing not work. And had a lot of interest and a lot. We still get calls. We get probably two or three emails or calls a week about the zero house and where can I get it? And it's because it's been on TV a number of places and uh, those shows are still rerun. But wow. But yeah, the, the price, the cost is a problem. So we're we're doing a new version right now that has that really makes it much simpler, and all of the add-ons are options as opposed to integrated. So, so that, they're plugins. They're yeah, plugins. Right. So you can build your own version. You can do a super simple one for really inexpensively, or you can do the full blown versions. It's completely off grid as you want. So that's gonna. It's called the Comfort Capsule, and it's got a website that's going to be up um, probably in a couple of weeks. So wow, cool. So that um, that's a, so that's like the iPhone version or the uh, you know the the Android version. Well, it'd be an iPhone version if you guys have designed all the apps that are basically that's plugged right. into it. You know, yeah, no, bolted onto each side of it. Well, yeah. it's a it's a car sales option uh, model where you, yeah. you get your base model, but they know you know if you buy a Tesla, you're not going to buy that base model that gets you know 200 miles per charge. You're going to upgrade to the big battery. You're going to upgrade to this. So um, yeah. So it's that idea where the initial cost can be low and then you're, you pick and choose from what you want to add on to that. So we're, yeah, I like that. That's fabulous. We're excited about Comfort it. Comfort capsule. Yeah. And we designed it around, you know, we're trying to minimize exterior envelope because the expense in a house is usually the exterior uh, perimeter wall. So the, uh-huh. the form that's actually most uh, efficient in terms of interior space versus exterior volume is a sphere. You can't live in a sphere. So the, the closest thing that's rectilinear is a cube. So this house is basically a cube house. It's two stories and um, it's almost exactly a 25 by 25 by 25 cube. Then you can reconfigure and put plug them together into doing different things. So you can make a large complex out of these or you can keep a single one or you can, you know, there are a lot of different variations on it. How awesome. And when you do something like this, we were, we were chatting before we started recording and you know I was saying, you know, it's sort of like the zero house. If you hadn't done the zero house, um, which, as I likened it, it's like a Formula One car, say. And then you go, you know, it, it can't operate without all its pieces. Right. Well, they seem to pull them off the track as soon as a piece comes off. So yes. I'm picking they can't operate very well. And then 
it teaches you so many lessons that then you end up like you say with the comfort capsule and you go this is this is what we learned from one but we all that learning and the and the time between the that project and this project gives you that uh, scope of of growth and percolation and everything else that happens that you go okay now we've got now we can see how this can can come together but it yep. takes a lot of investment and time and innovation and uh, cost absolutely um, and and that's what uh, how the comfort capsule came about is that the zero house um, you know we got so many comments on it and everyone was how much is this going to cost first of all that was the big of one of course but yep. then it was you know, I like this, but can it be uh, three bedrooms instead of two? And I'm like, well, no, it's it's designed as it is what it is. You can't really expand it without destroying the appearance. So you yeah. learn from all these different comments what to put into the next version. And then, you know, the iteration is what makes it great. But it, you're right. It takes a lot of time and uh, a lot of investment of uh, money as well as time because there's labor sure. to uh, that has to go into it. So. There's that. Yeah, there's um, lots of uh, a commitment, and innovation always is a commitment, which is pretty interesting. It's, uh, but it's not often that um, you come across it in uh, overall factors like what you're talking about. Like I, I might see something that's in plumbing products, and they'll be highly innovative. But we're talking about widgets and gadgets kind right, of things. Right. Um, and you know, we we started off having our little chat about SpaceX launches and right. and Elon Musk and and his um, you know rapid failure technology that he weren't learns from, and in something like this, you're playing a sort of similar game. It's part um, in architecture, though, because um, you know you it costs so much to do architecture. It's not like art where mm -hmm. you have some paint and canvas, and if you screw up, you start over on yes, another one. Uh, and you're not dealing with your own money. You're dealing with other people's money, which makes you yeah. guilty about wasting that money. Um, so you have to get it right in the drawings and you get one chance to build it. And that's it. It's, you know, I, I sometimes talk to clients about this. It's like when you design, when GM designs a new car, they do models, they do, um, you know, many, many prototypes and test them on tracks. So by the time it goes out to market, it's been vetted for all these problems. Whereas when you design a house, you don't get that. You can't just, yeah. uh, you know, do endless iterations before you do it. So you have to be. No, you don't get to test it every time. No, yeah. you have to be pretty sure what you're doing. And, and you know, like our staff is great because I, most of the people that work for me are very experienced. So, and I found a, a real value in that of just having people who really can detail things that aren't going to fail and have no problems down the road. So um, it's a little bit different model than some people uh, run their firm. Yeah. Is where we have, we basically have all chiefs and, and no staff. And, uh, <laughs> but it, it works for us. It, the way we run our firm. Well, that way. Clearly um, the culture uh, you've built a culture that supports that and you've obviously got leadership that supports it as well because that can either be the biggest disaster or, like you say, the biggest blessing. I had a builder I worked with a few years back and I don't think he had anybody on the site that was um, under the age of 50. Right. And uh, seriously, like that, that, he said to me, you know, it's like having everybody here is should be their own contractor, right. their own master builder. He goes... We hardly talk because we don't have anything, you know, when it comes to the house, when we're building, we're just, because everybody knows their job, they know how to do it. They know each other. They're such a tight team. They don't, there's not a lot of standing around and discussing or anything like that. Yeah. It's intuitive. They, they know how to read plans. They follow things. 
Um, Brother, the danger and they've got in this it, massive experience. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's great. The danger in it is everything becoming very hermetic and uh, you're not introduced to new ideas and you're not teaching a younger generation of people to do anything. So we're making active efforts to bring other people on board who are younger and, and you know, having them participate we, in the project. You project. automatically break the model by investing in things like Zero House, Comfort Capsule and... Um, the new one coming up, the new American home. So you're already forcing innovation, forcing change on them, um, which obviously they're comfortable with as well because otherwise they'd have left by now. Yeah, it's built (laughs) into the framework of since we we started the firm, we've done that. We've always had the experimental section of doing things and, you know, people rotate through those experimental projects. And so we just dedicate a portion of our, you know, our, our, funds to doing yeah. these experimental projects and they've they've paid off in many many ways it's like for the zero house i was able to not only get a lot of press for the firm but also give lectures on various aspects of self-sustaining design and and really dig into a community that i never would have been a part of otherwise so there's a lot of value personally and for the firm in that too and i think this new american the comfort capsule will continue that but the new american house project that i'm working on now is pushing things in a little bit different direction um, in an interesting way. Uh, and I hope it becomes the same sort of, you know, innovator uh, project. Yeah. Well, I mean, regardless of whether it, um, yeah, it, it, you'll learn and the firm will learn and it tightens all the cogs when you do it. I, I was saying to you earlier, like I worked in innovation, um, training people in innovation and did a bit of a stint there with Airbus and then worked with a whole lot of other um, big companies around the world as well and training them in a very, uh, I suppose, distinctive technique of innovation and problem solving, um, but one where you already have the answers. Right. And uh, I don't have the answers, but the answers exist and they're, they're labelled, they're written out, the answers, you can go and read them. Um, and people are like, well, how does that work? And and you do it, you, it's systematic innovation um, and with it, you uh more important than any answer is the question you know right um the answer could be yes but (laughs) yes what (laughs) um so yeah the question and forming a question is where innovation really starts and and also innovation versus creation um you know a lot of people think that they're working in creation yeah, there's very little creation in the world. There's an awful lot of innovation in the world. And then it stands out or it doesn't stand out because it solves a problem. Well, you have to know what also where you're headed um, when you do yeah. that. You know, a lot of places keep pushing innovation, innovation. Well, why? Uh, like, yeah. is there a point to this innovation? And are we heading for something? You know, I not to get political, but I keep heading in, you know, looking at politics, especially in the U.S. right now. And it's like, I could do with some innovation. Well, or some goal, um, because you see a lot of endless fighting. And is there a real vision of what would make an ideal country? And we are doing these, uh, you know, coming up with these concepts in order to form this thing we really are headed toward. Or is it just, you know, arguing for the sake of arguing over uh, certain things? It seems to have lost lost its track i think in a lot of ways yeah it's a really interesting point if you if you if you looked at um if you looked at say like just take your firm and then if you looked at american politics and not just american either but we'll use it because we've just had an election and da 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 american politics 
electioneering has become prize fighting. Um, and they have used uh, innovation. They're using technology as an innovation platform to um, no different than, uh, you know, posting it on your you posting your house on Instagram or whatever. You're just sending it your work out there. And, and then you look at that and you go, but what's the what's the big goal? And the big goal for a for a government should be um, the wellness of its people, the wellness of its economy. Actually, it's the wellness of its people and nothing else. Then the wellness of the economy, the planet, the, you know, all the pieces that drop down from that. But creating a culture that is again that self sustainable culture that that grows and moves forward and doesn't. It's not even that growth is so important, and it change is probably more important than growth. Yeah, and that seems to have been lost with day-to-day governance of problems. Well, I think the goal now is just to win. That, that's it, period. Yeah. It's just yeah. win this race or this game and beat the other person. And it really doesn't have much to do with anything else at some point. And that's a little bit cynical because I do think there are a lot of people out there trying to push things along in terms of Absolutely. health and everything else. But it seems like the the idea of winning and having to win that next election and say what you have to say to be able to win that has taken over so much of the time and energy as opposed to the actual trying to do other things or mm. you know, experiment mm. in other ways that uh, it seems to have come to a halt. And I think I, you can tie that back to architecture, too, that, um, yeah. you know, you, when people talk about innovation, we're going to introduce some new, uh, you know, form or uh, way of doing things or uh, design. I don't want to single out any specific design huh. movement or anything like that, but you got to ask why, what is this providing that's better than what had come before? And is, if it's better, great. I'm, you know, like led lighting is an amazing innovation that really has changed mm-hmm. architecture drastically mm-hmm. for the better and still has a lot of ways to go. Um, then there are other things that are formal and uh, trendy and, you know, they're going to come and go. And so what's the point of, of, of that necessarily, unless it provides some experience that's worthwhile. Um, and maybe it does, uh, you know, yeah, I, yeah, there's I, I probably have thoughts a, on that, but uh, on some things and other things, but you know, I can be wrong too. <laughs> uh, if, hopefully we're all wrong a reasonable amount of the time because that's where we learn from. Um, it's just how, how wrong we are or how big the, the impact of it is. Yeah. You say with that led lighting, I've got a, a friend who's an architect in London and um, he studied architecture. His dad was an architect as well. He studied architecture and he was, yeah, it's, it's good and, you know, enjoyed it. And anyway, he ended up in some part of the UK where he did two years of studying film, but to study architecture. Mm-hmm. And so you just take a 30 second clip and um, of these classic movies and you'd just be looking at the buildings with all the light and how they were shaped and formed and you know all these things he said he he's a like a huge movie buff but he said it's what ignited his real understanding of architecture was how light falls against things Mm -hmm. and led lighting has changed um the, the ability to light cheaply and uh in so many different forms has so much changed our uh, ability to show off space and to right. use space and to you know highlight pieces of it and, yeah. and and to use light and dark 
Right. No, there's a lot of uh, connection between film and, uh, you know, architecture of just, yeah. and that's been written about plenty of, of you know, uh, you moving your way through a space and how, you know, you compress space and then open it up and how it, how that mirrors film scenes and things like that. But, you know, the LED experience is interesting. It's kind of like when electric light was first introduced, uh, you see buildings like Grand Central in New York where mm-hmm. the bare bulbs were exposed on all the fixtures because that was like showing off your amazing technology here of, of an electric <laughs> light. So you wanted to see that bulb and not cover it up. And, and glowing uh, at 15 watts or something. Yeah, you know, and, and that's all it could do. We just have passed out of the phase of that with LED. You know, it used to be everything LED strip lights under every handrail. So you saw that, yeah. like, oh, this glows in a, in a limb. So you got to get beyond the showing off of, oh, here's a new technology for lighting, but actually see what it can do um, for creating an experience again that you, something you really want that you think is better than what came before. And that's the big question always is this better? Um, I th- yeah. And, and how does it serve people better? And um, how does it, yeah, add value to life. Right. Like, as you say, you can do showing off, but how do you add value to people's lives with something? Yep. I think that's a really fascinating kind of uh, piece. Like, And, and then the, the tendency is beyond showing off. It's like with, you know, LED lighting. And I was talking to, I did a podcast with an amazing lady, um, Zara, recently, and we were talking about how it... Um, how it's used and where it's used and what it does to your circadian rhythms and, mm-hmm. and how it can affect those as well. And so we've got a lot of learning and innovation that's still going to come as we explore in. But as you say, it's become, we've moved through the just showing off phase and we're, we're moving into like the, I suppose where it gets just bedded down and it becomes a standard at that uh, we we're learning constantly little nuances about it. Yeah, I, yeah. Do. I mean, and the sad part is that a lot of people uh, get locked into an idea of what a type like LED lighting when it first came out. The white light was horrible. It was bluish, and the color temperatures were awful. The color rendering indexes was were horrible, and so people got <laughs> yep. it in their heads that oh, LED looks horrible. Have you, have you seen these Christmas, the early Christmas trees that had LED lights that are kind of purplish and? It just yep. feels gloomy yep. and dismal the whole time, you know, the yep. whole thing. So people have it in their heads. Some people do that. That's what LED is about. But, uh, you know, it's become so subtle now. You can't, you can create any well, that, kind of light configuration with LED. Yeah, um, absolutely. Every kind of light configuration, yep. not, not any, every, like we can dial it up. Yep. You know, those some of those people that are still saying that about LED are probably still running those Christmas tree lights because they've yeah. got, you know, 80,000 hours of yeah. running or something. <laughs> oh, no, exactly right. They never die. So um, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like, should we use the purple lights or should we use the natural colored lights? Yeah. I love it. Um, there was something else that you said before about uh, when you were doing stuff and uh, you said, you know, a quick and dirty system, like DOS operating system, you know, that uh, was created. And and I was like, so a, a, a dirty architectural system was what came to mind. And I was like, yeah, a DAS system. So it's that. It's <laughs> <laughs> and, and that sort of took me back in a loop around to that SpaceX thing of, you know, like, so you, you break the rules and you put something like this together. And then once you've got something like that together, then you test it and you break it and then you test it and you break it and you just keep going like that, which is kind of fun. Well, the, the, kind of the, fun. the way that architects usually pull that off is by doing a house either for themselves or for their parents. Yep. 
It's <laughs> ideally their parents, so their parents fund yeah. it. No, many, many famous architects did their first, you know, their breakout work for their parents or relatives or something like that, you know. Uh, uh, so it, it's a common venture, you know, uh, there. There's a lot of examples. Oh, uh, Harry Seidler, who's dead now, but Harry Seidler's very well known in Australia. And um, he did at the, the Rose Seidler house, which is his parents' house. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's like you say that. And I'm like, yeah, of course they did. Yeah. Yeah. So they were the people that believed in them. So the new house design that we're doing, uh, the new American house, the first one I'm doing is for myself. So it's, uh, it's uh, right. So I can experiment on myself before like uh, foisting it on anyone else. Do you know something that that um, that happens here? I see it happen here with um, what we call project home builders. So they are like uh, non-custom homes. You know, roll them out. If subdivisions are full right. of them, and and they build uh, their show home as it's, it's to them. It's no different than you know printing business cards. Right. You build a show home to show off what you can do and then it becomes a, a sales tool and, you know, so on and so on. And if you take, you know, something like New American Home House and any of them, you know, um, the Zero House, those kind of things, in a sense, it's like doing a business card of your ability. Absolutely. Um, as well as taking the big leap of prototyping it into real form. No, absolutely. That's part of the reason that you do that for yourself. And, uh, you know, usually it's a showpiece of, of what you do, but I'm not sure the one that I'm doing now, new American house, which I didn't really describe very much is, uh, I, I, it's, it's more moving in a new direction as opposed to doing, you know, a great example of the kind of architecture we do now. So, um, it'll be very different. It's actually, uh, it's a house based on, um, more or less on Roman model house where there are no windows. It's a house without windows and it's formed around not a, you know, the Roman house had a central courtyard, which was the impluvium, uh-huh. which collected rainwater and it poured down into uh-huh. the center and all the rooms were around that. Well, that works wonderfully. You have light and air and privacy and more or less, you know, one big door that leads out to the street and part of your house had shops in it that faced the street. So it was public private mix along with uh-huh. all that. But there wasn't much for family privacy for individuals. They just looked at each other across this big courtyard. So what this house does is form a big wall, but it's got multiple tiny courtyards inside that every bedroom has its own outdoor courtyard space and the living room has its own outdoor courtyard space. And it's all bounded by a larger wall that encompasses the entire thing. And so it's, uh, you know, I always look at and I live in a, you know, in an urban setting, but it's individual houses. And they're yep. all based on the ranch house model or, you know, uh-huh. a traditional European model where the houses are placed in a gigantic piece of property and the windows look out at this beautiful property. Well, these houses are put 10 feet apart. And so the side of the house window looks at another window or a wall. Why do those backyards even exist? And then you have a backyard that has a fence all the way around it. Um, so you're not uh-huh. encroaching on your neighbors. So. So there's another wall that's kind of not really part of the house, but is tacked on to the house. Why not integrate all this stuff? And so that was the idea. You do your all you're looking is internal to your own courtyard. And then you can put these houses right up against each other and form a giant block of this stuff. Um, And you have, you know, complete privacy, but also they're very pleasant, bright, light filled you know, spaces to be with lots of future in yeah. next year. So we're, we've got this in development that's pretty far along and uh, we'll be posting a website on that 
soon as well. So that sounds amazing. It, you know, it it's so cool that you you play with that, and I think one of the the challenges with anything like that is that the city ordinances and and planning schemes and stuff are set up like you said with ranch houses and Victorians and yeah. that in mind. Um, and then suddenly, you know, you've got setbacks and light angle easements and, you know, all these kinds of things that you go, well, hold on a second. The, the maximum I can use of my land is this. Um, you know, we have a rule here and a lot of the area here, you know, 50% of your house, sorry, your land footprint, 50% can be the downstairs of your property, your house, and then it might be 40% above or whatever it is. Um, but you, you're maxed out at a certain level of land coverage. Yeah, well, this gets back to your idea of the uh, the resort developer wanting to go out in the middle of the desert and build you know whatever he wants to build is that you can get around Absolutely. a lot of those things and do it. So yes, for this prototype, yep. for this house, it has to follow all of those rules that have been set up by a model that is outdated or uh, yeah. wasn't really even thought about, I think, it was just like, oh, we have to separate these houses by X amount and that's enough. And yep. Um, so, yep. but the, the way to get through that is, is a lot of plotting. You've got to show examples of how this can work well, and then you've got to repeat that and over and over again. And then finally, you know, zoning and its slow movement changes along. That happened here in Austin, uh, where, uh, ADUs, accessory dwelling unit, yep. where people built yep. a small house in back, in the back of their property, took years and years and years for the zoning, uh, to change, to allow things like that here and, allow them to proliferate. So there have been slow changes over time to, you know, go from first allowing a garage apartment on fairly large lots. And they've slowly over time shrunk the size of the lot that can have an ADU. And now they're encouraging ADUs. So it's, uh, it can happen. It just takes a while. Yeah. And often you do have to go outside of densely populated areas to really introduce these, these concepts. Got to cross that County line. Yeah, and it gets back to, you know, the theme park idea. You know, Walt Disney, before yeah. he died, uh, building Epcot was his – he really f- did his entire business in order to build Epcot. He didn't give a – he really didn't give a shit about the other stuff he was doing. It was to build Epcot, and sadly yeah. he died before he was able to, but that was his thing. He wanted to build an entire city. It was the megalomania – you know, aspect yep. of any designer, filmmaker, whatever, but, uh, yeah, well, to get total control, total control yeah. over his city. And, you know, he had full into it. on the day he died, he still thought it was going to happen. And then the company realized afterwards, it's like, wait, this makes no financial sense whatsoever. And they didn't build it. So, <laughs> you know, you can imagine having to go in, if it was supposed to have the most up-to-date technologies, you'd have to go into everybody's apartment every three years and rip out all their plumbing and, or whatever, and put a and, whole new stuff in and so, shift it. So it doesn't really yeah, but what a what a vision, though, and um, and you know, amazing vision, and to to uh, wanting for the betterment of mankind, not, yeah, and maybe a little bit of you know, like a megalomaniac type uh, attitude there, but um, because everybody would wash down your vision, you know, I've got a question based on that, and and you know, tell us about some of your projects, but as an architect. Um, and as a firm, I, I see that there's kind of two categories of firms. There's, there's firms that um, work for clients, and I'll explain what I mean here, and then there's cl- firms who work with clients. And firms who work for clients often have very strong signatures, and it's kind of like going, oh, I'm going to go and buy a new Mercedes. Um, you go down, you choose the model, and then you, you can play with the model. But 
No, fundamentally, you've bought the car, right? You've, you know, it, it's or a Tesla. You know, what can I plug into this? And then there's some firms who work just with clients, and they end up with a very eclectic bunch of um, clients' whims, right? Um, and how do you how do you play both games in your firm? And and where's the line for the best outcome for the client? Yeah. Well, it, it's funny. It's a, it is, it's a way to success for a lot of architects is to produce the same, you know, stylistic signatures over and over and over again. And that way you come to that per, uh, architect and you know what you're going to get basically. So, sure. you know, and you see that a lot, you know, Frank, you go to Frank Gary, I saw Frank Gary lecture once and he uh, described it as like, if you have a lot of money, you get an all swoopy building. And if you have a little less money, you get a swoopy building attached to a box. And if you don't have much, you get a box with a little bit of swoopy stuff attached to it. You know, you, you know what that signature <laughs> moment is in there. Um, and then there are other architects, like you said, that um, really uh, tailor their work to exact to working with the client. And I, I think we do that more. We are really interested in what the client is seeking. But we do have certain spatial and aesthetic tendencies, I guess you call them, things that we think work and work well and look right. And so we stick to those. So our firm is a balance of that. I think we're very client focused. And it's really interesting to try to peel off. Uh, you become an analyst in some ways, is to try to peel off what they're really looking for and why they chose you to start with. Um, but then do something that really fits them as opposed to imposing, you know, one style that you've come up with on everything. And I think if you look in our portfolio, some of our work, it's it's very eclectic in a way, but there is a tying thread through it that you can recognize. And so, uh, you know, if you look at like the Carpenter Hotel we did, which was mm-hmm. um, a renovation and addition to a 1949, you know, union hall that was converted to a hotel restaurant complex. And you look at the Preston Hollow House, which is very brutalist inspired. And you look at other yep. things, they don't quite look alike, but you can you definitely see an aesthetic sensibility that ties them all together. So so it's a fine. It's a tough line because a, a lot of times you get asked by clients to do things that are like way outside your wheelhouse. And you yeah. don't feel comfortable doing. And we, you know, finance, finances are a big part of it, but we usually turn those jobs down when we can. <laughs> if we're in a hard yeah. spot, we'll take it on and we'll do a good job. But uh, we don't, we tend not to want to do those kind of things where we're not super excited about them. And uh, luckily right now we're in a position where we can, we can do only things that we were excited about. And clients, quite frankly, that we really like. Uh, so it's it's kind of tough to, you know, go to initial meetings and figure that out, but uh, it can make a big difference too as a client who's very excited about the process too and really wants to work with you. And um, we've had some great ones. Yeah. I think that's a really key point is clients that um, you can really like. Um, you might know um, from Alabama, Jeff Dungan, he, he does very traditional style homes mm-hmm. and beautiful work. And uh, Jeff said to me, I'm not looking for um, great projects. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he said, I'm looking for great clients because with great clients become great projects. Right. And I went, isn't that the truth of, of truly what we're looking for is amazing people who you're inspired by and they're inspired by what you can do with them. And together that inspiration creates something that they get to live in or, you know, or, or share with other people and it's got enough of them. Yeah, no, be, being an architect, you have a long relationship with these clients. I mean, it's a long, yeah. you know, but from start to conceptual ideas all the way through the construction drawing process and then through construction, 
you're with them a long time. So you better be happy yeah. with each other. <laughs> <laughs> I always say to I always say to clients, um, you know, uh, you're in bed with the contractor and stuff like that for a long time, and uh, there's going to be a bit of pillow talk, and it's not always going to be as friendly as you want it to be. You've got to have, be able to be honest with each other in that journey as well. Yeah. And the same here. If I draw something that you don't like, then speak up now. Yes. It doesn't mean I won't keep drawing it. It just means that I'll be looking for another way that I can better um, either explain it or satisfy uh, your needs with it, you know, and that's that's the joy of the job. That's yeah. The no. joy of the job is so much the people. It, tru- it truly is. It's, uh, it's really, and it's fascinating to see how, how different people's ideas of how they really want to live are. And it's just, a, yeah. it's really interesting in that way. It, it is like a, an analyst in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, and a counsellor. Yeah. Um, tell me about the Preston House. Yeah, Preston Hollow House. It's in a the the neighborhood is Preston Hollow in Dallas. It's in Central yeah. Dallas, and uh, it uh, it's a project we just finished. But it was really uh, fascinating. Uh, Preston Hollow is interesting. It's right in the middle of the city, but it's a okay. um, a, a place that has uh, you know largest tracts of of houses, and it was is built. It's very accepting of many different styles. And a lot of these kind of areas, uh, you know, it's like we're going to allow through a homeowners association only X style. And that's all you can do here. And but there's a real mix of uh, traditional and modern and, you know, becoming more modern in Preston Hollow. So we had a client who found a a great piece of property in the center of uh, Preston Hollow. And uh, they came in with the right idea that it's funny that the, the owner was a or is a. Uh, a home builder. He builds more of what you were talking about before the stand, you know, the standard four models mm-hmm. and then you sell them, but he wanted something custom for his own house. And so he gave us a lot of leeway. There were just a couple of uh, requirements. There was one was he got a great piece of property. He wanted to use every square inch of it. He didn't want a house with a giant yard outside. He wanted the house to engage all of the land. Uh, so that right. was one requirement. And number two was in Dallas, direct sunlight, hitting any part of your the interior house is extremely unpleasant. So it had to be carefully calculated. So uh, the sun, as it passed through the day, different seasons and everything, you know, worked in exactly the right way to provide shading and everything else. After that, he was very open to any ideas we had. So it's kind of, he's kind of an ideal client in that, in that sense. Cause he, he could afford it, but he also just had those parameters, which just said then, okay, if you can solve these, then I'll give you a lot of leeway. Right. No, it's true. So how did you end up with the house that you ended up with, which is um, it's monolithic and in the sense of how it's size and weight and it's um, beautiful though, absolutely beautiful. It's a stunning balance of of weight and and space and vistas into the house as well. Well, that was part of it. It was, uh, and I shouldn't say he, it was, it was a couple that uh, that made the decisions uh, on it. It was, um, it really did come from land. It came from the land and it came from ideas about land art too. Mm -hmm. So the big moves on the site, I guess, to start with are these very, very long cast in place concrete walls. Uh, One of them is 250 feet long. Um, The other one's 125 feet long that extend through the property. And then we started to build on that idea. We oriented those so that they did exactly the right moves we wanted with sunlight. Uh, and yeah. those walls and sunlight, it was kind of like a, uh, it was kind of like a, a site art project to start with. And then how do we 
providing closure and all the other things architecture has to do from that point. So we did these walls out of uh, custom cor- uh, concrete uh, cast in place that was corrugated with custom corrugation on one side and smooth on the other. So it indicated you know, the passage from interior to exterior and through the house in certain ways and also played with light, you know, hitting these ribs yeah. and changing over the course yeah. of the day. But unlike a traditional brutalist building, which would be most likely all cast out of the entire thing cast out of concrete, we just left the walls where they were and then floated above this a very light pavilion roof that floats on with clear story windows um, separating it from the concrete below. So you have this contrast of super heavy, uh, grounded part and then the light part floating above um, the pavilion roof. And yep. it really makes for a... Um, an interesting, amazing experience when you're in the in the house. Um, it really does dissolve to the exterior in a way where, you know, the, these walls are highlighted by streams of water that run against them and lighting comes up through the water and lights the walls at night. And so it all plays off of these couple of moves. And uh, the roof is was designed around, you know, uh, this computer modeling we did of how sunlight moves. So it's got gigantic 15-foot cantilevers and other things going on, but it's all in service of providing shade. And we even yeah. got into a Roman house idea there, uh, a first one where there's an impluvium in the center, which collects rainwater and focuses it into an internal center, central garden uh, at the entry. Yeah. So uh, starting to experiment with some of those ideas as well. So, yeah. But it, again, it got back. It went back to the client, having a great client and, uh, you know, a, a, a site that you could really work with and do interesting things with. Yeah, it's a beautiful combination. And it is a stunning piece of architecture. It's one of the things that really struck me when looking through the pictures of it, which um, when Chris sent them to me, I was like, I shared them with two friends of mine who uh, I work closely with and just said, oh, you got to check this house out. How stunning is this? Um, well, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, you know, it is. It's so stunning and it's so beautifully balanced and it's got sensibilities of right now, you know, and, and, and things that are of, I would say, what I say, on trend right now, you know, with its off-form concrete. But the way you treated it, which just made it into more art pieces, and when you say that, you know, it, it's created by these two big walls and they actually create the function first, Um uh, and then everything else can come from that. And then the, the the balance of weight is what makes it quite beautiful because brutalist architecture can be stunningly horrible right. or it can be so um, fabulously lightweight. I was in New York oh, a few years ago and I was at um, Museum of Modern Art and they had a whole uh, exhibition on brutalist architecture, which was pretty interesting it had a lot of uh you know sort of eastern block architecture and Mm -hmm. stuff like that in there and you know there's a beauty in in the fact that you take on nature and some places and you build these big structures but then to take it on like you did there where it's uh in a in the form of a house and that house it's got the the elements that can make it so much of a home rather than just a structure as well with the light with the the contrast of weights and I imagine, uh, not having been there, but um, there's probably some great opportunities to view it from when you live in it, to view those different pieces um, yeah, it, so that you get a sense of it. It's an interesting thing. Another, you know, a client uh, desire, at least, was this is a, a house that's very, it's right on a street, uh, public street. They didn't want to end up being another house that puts a big wall in front or hedgerow uh-huh. or something like that. They They wanted it to just be exposed. So the house itself had to, 
provide that privacy? And how do you do that without making it look like a fortress from the outside? Since uh, So part of it was doing these walls in a way that does provide that privacy and sense of entry, but also, uh, you know, is beautiful in its in itself as a composition. So that's, uh, that yeah. was a real trick there. And, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting about brutalism, you know, um, any trend in architecture or art or anything else is hard to peg at any moment because things can look horrendous at a point in time. Like there was a point in the 1970s when art deco architecture was seen as the most horrible, gaudy trash that we should be demolishing at every moment. And the only reason it was preserved in certain places like Miami Beach was a lack of money and interest. Nobody else wanted to develop anything there. So those things sat and rotted. Um, and then an appreciation comes later for, it's like, oh, maybe this is actually beautiful. You know, Victorian architecture went through the same thing. Um, you know, absolutely. uh, yep. Penn station was destroyed because it was seen as, you know, horrid and over encrusted and not modern and everything else. So these things always come around if they're extreme examples at points. But what I think what we try to do is something that's a little more timeless. We'll use elements of that, but. I wouldn't call the Preston mm. Hollow House a brutalist house by any means. It's um, no. it's got so many other elements in it. So it's it it plays into a few of the tropes of that, which is core ribbed cast in place concrete. But it uses it really judiciously. It's it's not all that. Uh, there's a lot of openness and a lot of glass, and it it doesn't have the weight of those uh, other brutalist. You know, openings. I think that's what's so divine about it. It doesn't have it doesn't have just weight. It right. has the mix of everything, and that's what keeps it grounded, as well as it floats. Um, you know, you get it, it. It's yeah, it's got a beautiful balance to that. One last question: uh, What's next? And we know it's the American, the new American house. But what's next for you in this journey? Uh, yeah, you know, in terms of a firm, we're doing well right now. But I think it's continuing the. You know, it took a long time. I've been doing this 25 years, I guess, on my own or it, it, in partnership with my my uh, with Louise and then on my own. So it's been a long time and it took a long time to get to a place that felt comfortable, quite honestly, um, where you get the right mix and balance of what kind of people you want working for you, what kind of clients you want to have, what kind of work you're trying to do and what you're really saying with that work. And I, th- I feel like you know, it's only been a few years where it's really all come together. And so it's continuing to refine that and the mix of experimentation versus practical work. Um, yeah. You know, I think it's so important to keep that going because it's easy when you get busy, it's easy to dump the experimental stuff altogether and just focus on your work. So you have to very carefully plan your schedule in order to be able to still do these experimental things that then really push your practice along in a different way and keep it interesting. So you know, I feel lucky that we've that, you know, it's taken a while, but have found that kind of sweet spot that we like right now. And it is really trying to, per- to keep that machine going in the way it's going and uh, and still moving forward. You know, I, I do think there is this big goal at the end, like, you know, Elon Musk, for all the nuttiness of his private personality, his sole goal is he wants to die on Mars. You know, it can be the most yeah. ridiculous end goal, but everything he's done including designing electric cars and building all this stuff is in, uh, you know, the service of this one ridiculous goal out there. And so do I have that ridiculous goal at the end? I think, honestly, it might come back to what you were talking about is to have the resources to put all these things that I've learned over time into this amazing project, which is the public park idea, um, you know, which 
I would love to, you know, actually be able to pull off and have slight inklings and plans as to how to do this thing as a private public uh, park. So, nice. so, you know, it, you know, I'm not sure that it's as defined as Elon Musk's wanting to die in a certain place like that. But, <laughs> but, uh, it's, uh, there Although is a drive you could be it. buried, you could be buried just inside that park. Yes, it could, <laughs> it could happen that way. So yeah, no. So it's uh, it's all uh, yeah. I feel very fortunate right now. It's a it's a beautiful spot to be in and um, to have that sense of that you're adding so much value to things as well like it's uh and it it, it, it's like I always think when you were saying that you know 25 years it's been a journey and I think you know of all the actors that are overnight sensations (laughs) 10 years of of grueling interviews and you know like no, he's the, got the wrong, you know, ears or no, not tall enough or no, whatever. You know, and there is very few overnight sensations of anything. No, it's true. And and you have to put in the equation luck because, uh, you know, it's honestly, there's so much about meeting one right person at the right party and just happening to be the person who wants to build X and can push your career in a completely different direction. It's uh, yeah. And a lot of people who become successful discount that. Um, and, you know, I try to keep that in the forefront, how lucky you can be sometimes and unlucky in other ways. So, uh, yeah, because I know some I went to school with some insanely talented designers and who ended up not, you know, getting in the right being as lucky. And it's just luck. It really is. So, um, Do you know, I, th- I think there is an, a, you know, opportunity and preparedness meet um, true. as well. Yes. And if you look back uh, through, you know, different stages of your life, there's very few times that you would say um, this was, uh, you know, I'm going to meet somebody on Friday that's going to change the game from here. And if you if you put the markers against those people that were your lucky charms as such that took you forward, it, none of them could be engineered. No. None of those things could be engineered. They're by chance. But the opportunity and preparedness is where it, the difference is, is that you were able to have that conversation or that you were, you know, uh, around the right sect of people, the right sort of group. And yeah, somewhere in there, there's that little spark and this thing twist together and you are prepared. Yes. Not necessarily for that moment, but you're prepared. You're absolutely right. Because, you know, even if you meet this perfect person who's, uh, you know, the great client for you, you have to have enough body of work to show them that you can actually pull off what they're hoping for or what they want. So so if you, you, it's a combination of both. You have to meet the person, but you also have to, you know, have that precedent behind you in order to show them things that, that you really can achieve what they're trying to do. So, yeah. It's and they've got to feel as excited as you are about the opportunity because for them, they were just as lucky to find you out of all the other places they could have looked. It's on both sides. It's, it's why I try to never uh, criticize, you know, what may be ugly architecture or bad architecture because you can never tell the forces that went into producing that. You know, it could have been somebody incredibly talented who really tried to sell their client on thing and that client was very resistant and so they went along with it because – their business was in a certain position. So you just don't know the circumstances behind what produced what that produced. So, and unless it's somebody there's who is a backstory to everything, there is, there's a backstory to everything. And especially architecture where there's so many people have to be involved to produce, you know, something great. Um, 
it's it's hard it's hard to criticize. <laughs> it's, it, but yeah, and and you know, like I totally agree with that. I go, it it is what it is. Whether you like it or don't like it is only an opinion. It's um, yeah. it is what it is, and you know, there can be bigger public opinion where lots of people don't like something or lots of people do like something. And that's probably just a again, um, it's finding the balance and the balance of that time. I do a lot of trend forecasting type work, and you know, the balance of this moment. Because uh, there's all these other forces that are happening. Uh-huh. You know, we take something like COVID, for instance, and you know, you're talking about yeah, the um, new American house and how it's like almost this encapsulates a space. This is a balance of this time where people go, you know what? My neighbors are too close. How do I have some? But I still live in an urban space. How do I have something that contains me and my family? You know, this is. Not that you probably started out with even any thought of that in mind, but this moment, these two moments start to collide as the, as the universe brings them together. It suddenly has a sensibility that you may have never, never even thought that it could own. And the key to that is not seeing it as a negative thing. Like, I, I think no. that's a danger is like something like the New American House, where it's really a walled house uh, of a Roman model. You could see that as a a regression in, uh, you know, society in a way where you're, you know, cutting yourself off or walling yourself off. But I try not to see it that way. It's like, and I don't think it is. I think it's actually responding to forces that have been around a very, very long time and things that were just done for unseen reasons long ago in the past and, you know, uh, correcting for that in a way. Uh, yeah. So it's producing something hopefully that's better and um, that, you know, uh, can be seen on its own track. I, you know, I try to take that about this moment, you know, people get extremely upset about the way history is going right now and things that, and, and, but if you take a long, big, much a long view, you know, <laughs> you can see the bigger waves in, in patterns and things. And it, it, there does seem to be some good that over the long trend comes out of all, a lot of things. So, uh, maybe I'm more Ab- optimistic. Absolutely. Than I I'm I'm a hundred percent with you. When you put things into a into a bigger perspective, uh, years ago I can't remember exactly who it was. Who he made the he was a uh, you know speaker trainer. He made the the point. You know, it's like a massive jigsaw puzzle, and if you focus on any one piece of a jigsaw puzzle, it will not have context. You need a bigger picture right. to get context. And so when things are very focused and everything's falling in on top of you, step back and try and see the bigger picture yep. of where you are in this piece and put the jigsaw puzzle back together rather than falling into one little corner of it. Yeah, it works and that way with designing buildings too. You can get absolutely you know, focused on one view or one tiny detail and you obsess on it and get that right and get everything else wrong. So uh, you zoom out, zoom yeah, in and out, zoom out and, and, and have a look look at it. Yeah. Scott, that has been absolutely fascinating. I do want to like do another interview with you when we do um, something on uh, the new American house. That'd be really fun. Oh, I enjoy it. This um, was fun. Thank you. Yeah. And um, also uh, when I'm in Austin next, which who knows when that'll be, I think yeah. it'll be a couple of years out at least. Yeah. I'm there usually every year. Okay. I come to the AIA tour every year. Right. Um, and I actually, uh, last year I went to the Texas Society of Architects Conference in uh, El Paso as well, okay. which was good fun. Yeah. Um, Ingrid invited me, so I went, yeah, sure, hell, I'll go. Okay. Why not? <laughs> Ingrid's great. Um, she's fantastic. She I love that woman. She's really good. She's great for architecture and oh, she's yeah. great for Austin. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Austin is a strange place where uh, – 
you know, you have things like the homes tour that get thousands of people every year. Mm. Not, not many cities have things like this. And uh, it's, it's a, it's a strange one. Yeah. So it's, she, it's fantastic. Yeah. She Beautiful and Sally Fly who came before her were, were big, were big uh, proponents of all this and really uh, made Austin something special. Yeah. Well, we, we will, um, when, when, I, when I do get there, we'll go for a wander on South Congress and maybe into the South Congress hotel and have a quiet beverage at the bar. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, be great. Good. thank you. Thank you so much. Go and have a great afternoon. All right. Take care. Take care, man. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Hi, my name is Richard Petrie. And if you're a designer who's frustrated by not winning the type of projects with clients who really value great design, Go to a new webinar training I'm going to give you where I'll teach you how to win higher value design projects where fees is not the number one priority. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design.